uh, welcome again. Uh, um, we're going to wrap up this series that we've that we've been on, week week number number six. Um, and I like I I have enjoyed um, this this study, this walk through the book of Ezekiel. But I got to tell you, I'm a what's next kind of guy, and and so six week series, I'm like, oh man, I'm ready to get on. Get on to the next one. So, uh, so what that means is I'm really ready to share with you uh, week number six in the in the wrap up of this series. So, uh, over the past five weeks, we've we've been on this journey with Ezekiel, with the nation of Israel. Um, they they had they had sinned. They had rejected God. They had begun to follow other um, false gods and idols. And because of that, they had uh, been taken into captivity into exile from their homeland by the nations who worshiped the very gods that Israel had begun to, to serve. And, and so if, if that was real, they were being taken captive by the very gods that they were trying to worship. So it's an interesting, um, interesting thing. And so they go to Babylon and, and God reaches out to Ezekiel and then he begins to use Ezekiel to share these messages with the, the people. Now the people knew uh, ahead of time, not only that they were going to go in, into exile be, because of their sin, which didn't, they didn't stop, they just continued doing it, but they also knew that their exile was gonna be 70 years. And um, God had a very specific reason for that, um, but it was 70 years long. And so we have been kind of, kind of looking uh, a few chapters uh, every, every time through this exile of, of the Israelite people um, through the eyes of Ezekiel and his visions or revelations um, from God and, and how God is using him to turn the hearts of the people back toward God, like that's the desire, that's what happened. God called Ezekiel, he shared this information with Ezekiel, Ezekiel passed that on to the people and the, the hope was that their hearts would be turned back to God. But if you've read the story, you know that um, that didn't happen at all. And so last week, we, we get to this point, if, if you were here, we talked about the valley of dead bones. Ezekiel is taken by God into this valley where there's just thousands of uh, skeletons of, of individuals scattered across this valley. And God does this incredible thing where the, the bones kind of, the, they come back together and the sinew and the muscle and the organs come back in them and, and they get all their body parts together and they're just still laying on the ground until the, the ruach, remember the, the spirit, the wind of God comes and gives them life and they stand up and they, and they live again. Um, and so last week, kind of the lesson is that the spirit of God is what gives life. And, and we can look like we're alive, but unless we have the spirit of God, we're not really experiencing the life that God intended. Here, here at, at real life, we call it real life. Like there's a real life that we live, the flesh and blood life that we exist in, but we know that there is an, another life. There's a spiritual life that's, that's happening. And when we're connected to God, we begin to function. We begin to live in that new reality and that real life. And we know that one day Jesus is coming back and, and there's going to be a united heaven and, and earth and God's presence is going to be with us. And at that point, 
right, we'll be able to experience the, the full measure of this real life that God wants us to wants us to live. But for that to happen, God has to fundamentally change us, change us. And so he, he doesn't just take what's broken in us, he doesn't just restore it, but but he makes something new. In fact, in in Romans chapter six, we read about that. Paul says that when you come to faith in in Jesus, and he's talking specifically about baptism in that chapter, but he he says, look, you you become a new creation. He says the old is gone and the new has come. Like there's new life and it's not just a restoration, but it's this brand new thing that happens. And, And when we have that new life, then we're able to follow God's direction. And, and because of that, as we follow him, we're able then to lead others towards Jesus. And so we said it this way, when we're following Jesus, we're able to contrast the culture by walking in the ways of, of God. And so that's what we're gonna kind of look at today as we wrap up this um, series. Now that God has kind of led us through this process of recognizing um, our call, and recognizing our condition, now we're ready to begin to discover how he will ultimately change us, and that happens from the inside out. And so to do that, we're gonna jump to Ezekiel chapter 40. So we've come like through the book, we're gonna be um, kind of looking at the last eight chapters a little bit, but not for, for very long. So let's jump in, verse one. Chapter 40, in the 25th year of our exile. So remember the exile is 70 years. This is the 25th year of that 70 years. It's the beginning of the year, 25th year. It's on the 10th day of the first month. Uh, And the city, we talked about this, I think last week or the week before, that um, the Jewish uh, exiles had gotten word that the city of Jerusalem had actually been, been raised. It had kind of been destroyed. So the city was struck down and that was about 14 years ago. Ezekiel says, on that day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And we've heard that, we've seen it over and over and it it means that God is about to show Ezekiel something uh, incredible. And so God brought Ezekiel to the city and and he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. So he's in uh, Babylon and God takes him in this vision to the city of Jerusalem. And in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and he sat me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. So uh, Ezekiel's kind of looking down on this uh, city. And when he brought me there, behold, there was a, a man whose appearance was like Bronze, And so, you know, we get, always get these kind of interesting uh, uh, ideas, like these angels that appear, and it's, it's hard for Ezekiel to tell us what they look like. With this uh, appearance, this was, it's like a man, he thought, but it, it looked like polished bronze, it's a linen cord. He was, uh, had a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, and then declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So he's kind of laying this out. Look, Ezekiel, I'm gonna show you this stuff, and the goal of showing you this is that you would understand, and then you'd be able to share or declare this to the rest of the house of of Israel. And and really in these verses, we kind of see like the same storyline that we've been looking at for the last 
five weeks. The hand of God comes upon Ezekiel in a vision, um, and, and then he's supposed to relay that vision to the rest of the people. And I, I think what um, God shows Zeke is, is one thing that the, the, the people are missing more than anything else. Um, and, and it's really odd that the people aren't missing God. They're not missing their connection to God being thousand miles away from him. They're not missing their connection to God. What they're really missing is the temple. Uh, the temple was, yes, it was kind of the center of the city. It was the center of, of, of worship. But they had strayed pretty far from the worship of God in, in the temple. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how they were, had set up idols inside the temple proper, and they were worshiping the sun from in front of the temple. Like they'd gone a long way from this. But the temple was in a beautiful, amazing structure, and the people's hearts longed for this building. Um, let me just let me just say I didn't think about this before, but uh, you know we're in an interesting situation that we we don't have a building of our own, and we've been waiting for what 16 years we've been a church and not had a building, and and we're on the verge, right? It's a, another couple months, and we're going to be we're going to be in our own building, and I think the I think the idea is that sometimes when you get that thing you've been wanting, you kind of go, okay, we've made it. Like we, we've got here, uh, and, and now we have a building and we don't have to, like we can just rest and relax now. And I've seen it happen in church after church after church. You, you get that building, you get that thing, it becomes this kind of temple, and then you forget about the, the mission and why the church really exists. And, and so I, I hope and pray that, that that doesn't happen here at, at, at real life. Yes, the building is going to be amazing and we're going to be able to have ministry out of there and groups meeting in there and it's going to be it's going to be awesome to have that. But the building doesn't mean anything if the presence of God isn't there, if the people aren't doing what God has called us to do. If, the, if we let the mission go because we've got a building, that is that is a problem. And so that's what happened to Israel. They had this beautiful temple and it was amazing and they longed for the temple, but they didn't really long for God. And so they, they kind of turned away from him. And, and, and so we, there's this interesting line here where, where God tells Zeke to look with his eyes, to hear with his ears, and then to set his heart on all that he's about to see. And, and it's kind of interesting, you're like, he's in a vision already, like he's seeing these amazing things, there's this angel standing there showing it, like of course Ezekiel is gonna pay attention to what's going on, and, and, and yet I think that when we see those lines, and, and God is being specific, there's three times he's saying, look, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, and I think that's a sign that maybe we ought to pay attention to what's going on here. And so the, the reason I think that, that, that we see this line in, in the text, at least maybe part of the reason, is that God thinks Ezekiel might miss what he's trying to get across to him. Um, like maybe you have a young kid and, and they're kind of drifting out and, and you're like, hey, pay attention to this. This is going to help you. This is going to be beneficial to you. And so you've got to pay attention. It's like what God is doing with Ezekiel. It's like, look, Ezekiel, I, I know you've seen the temple before. You've seen the city of Jerusalem. You know where the gates are, but you've got to pay attention because there's something bigger going on than just the layout of this, 
of the city of Jerusalem. And so pay attention or you might miss it. You might miss the meaning of these things that you're seeing and hearing and you're supposed to set your heart on. And, and God wants to make sure that Ezekiel gets it because the last line says is Ezekiel is supposed to share it with everybody else. Zeke, I need you to get this so that you can help other people get it too. And so in the rest of Ezekiel, chapters, um, the, the rest of chapter 40 and then clear to the end in 48, God shows Ezekiel in, in like painful detail every aspect of this new, rebuilt, restored temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. And, and I don't know if you re recall reading throughout the Old Testament um, prophecies and visions of the temple of God. It happens over and over again. Even in Revelation, you read that, and there's a really detailed explanation of the temple of, of God. And, and, it, and if you study that kind of stuff, you look at it, um, l let me just tell you that, ah, I, like sometimes I get to them, I'm just like, here we go again. Yes, I know there's gates on every side of the, the city walls and I, I understand, like I get it, I get it. Okay, let's move on. But I think that's why God is telling Ezekiel, like pay attention, Zeke, pay attention. I know you've seen this before. I know you've heard it before, but there's something else happening here and I want you, I want you to get it. And so if you read the end of, of Ezekiel there, you're gonna get all of these details about the city, about the temple, about the gates, about the thresholds, about the thickness of the walls and the height of the walls. By the way, 11 feet thick and 11 feet tall are the walls around the, the temple. And there's, there's like just all kinds of detail here and you kind of get lost in it. But they really, there's, there's important reasons why we get that. For instance, on all four walls, east, west, north, south of the temple compound, there are gates and the gates are open. And, and this signifies that God's temple, God's presence is to be available to everybody. It wasn't just for Israel, it was for every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation was that, that would hear God would be able to come into the temple. That's why the gates are open, that's why they face every way. So there's reasons why we read the things we read about the temple. Jew or not, you can come and you can be a part of this, of this kingdom. And, and even more than that, we read in that last section of Ezekiel that, that this temple, this city of Jerusalem, this new city, is not gonna be like a temporary vacation home from God. And in fact, he, he really tells Ezekiel something extraordinary. Look, look at this. Um, and then God said to him, son of man, this is the place of my throne. And, and if we stop there, we just go, what's he saying? He's saying, Ezekiel, this is gonna be the place of my authority. That's what a throne is, right? The throne of, of God, the throne of the king, that's where he makes decisions. That's where his rule and his wishes are carried out. If you come before the throne of the king, like that's a big, big deal. There's lots of pomp and circumstance that, that happens when you approach the throne of the king. And so if God just stopped there, we'd get this idea that God is saying, look, here's where my throne is gonna exist. Here's where I'm gonna rule from. Here's where I'm going to make all of you servants just follow me and obey me and carry out my wishes. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just the place of his throne. He says, it's the place of the soles of my feet. 
where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring, by the dead bodies, the kings of the high high places. They're not going to be worshiping other gods uh, or false gods. They're going to be with God and he's going to dwell in their midst forever. And, and, and so this is not just the place where God is going to rule. This is going to be the place where God resides. The soles of his feet are going to be like he's going to walk with people. He's going to live with them. Uh, this is where he's going to sit and eat. This is where he's going to hang out with the people. And so it's not this authoritative thing, it's this relational thing. He's gonna dwell in this same area with the people. He's gonna make his home among them forever. Now, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, you think about this, but God has tried to live among humanity on, on multiple occasions in, in the Bible, right? God has attempted to live with his creation and exist with them and have relationship with them several times, and, and, and we're going to see that, that this never, it never works out. In fact, the first time it happens is with um, Adam and, and Eve, right? In the, in the garden, he creates this perfect existence for Adam and Eve. And they can do anything, like they're just, like you heard this before from me, like they're in there, they're naked, life is good. It's the best possible situation of every situation. It's, um, it's amazing. And, and the only thing, they just have like one rule. They only have one thing that they have to follow. They can do anything they want in this garden, just one thing, don't eat from that tree, right? Um, but they reject God's rule and they try to rule themselves. We know better than God and so we can eat from the tree. And, th and then God's desire to be in relationship with Adam and Eve here, to live with them, to be present with them, the soles of his feet walking with them on the earth, that goes away and it doesn't happen. The second time God tries to live among humanity is with Israel after the Exodus. So he, he frees them powerfully from, from the nation of, of Egypt and they get out into the desert and the first thing they do is they reject him. They turn their back, they've seen all this stuff he's done in Egypt, and then they go, ah, we don't know, maybe we should do something else. And they reject God uh, uh, again, like God is there in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, he's present with them, it's this amazing thing, and yet the, the people reject his power, and they try to live under their own power and their own ability. And um, th there's, another, there's another time when the people entered the promised land and they build the temple. In fact, they first build Solomon's temple. The presence of God comes, it says it fills the temple and the priests couldn't enter the temple because the presence of God was so strong there. Imagine um, just as a, a way of kind of an analogy, if the sun came and existed in a place on earth, like you couldn't get close to it. That was kind of the idea. The presence of God was so intense in the temple that the people couldn't, couldn't get there. And yet, what did they do? Well, we, we just read the, the other week. They not only have rejected God, but they've set up worship of other idols in God's temple. And so even though God tried to uh, remain among them again, like it didn't work, and now the nation of Israel is in exile because they had once again rejected God's rule and reign, and they tried to, to do it on their own. And, and so what this tells us is that 
We can't remain in relationship with God because we are always going to reject him. We're always gonna come to this point where we go, I don't know if you can do it. I don't know if I trust your story. I think it's better if I go this way. And we, we do that today, right? I mean, we, we read the Bible and we find things that, eh, I don't know if I agree with that. And so I, I think I'm gonna believe this other thing. I think I'm gonna do this other thing. I think I'm gonna accept this, this other thing. And, and what we're doing there is, is we're saying, God, I think I know better than you. I think you've missed the mark here. I, I read this interesting thing this, this week um, about Jesus uh, as he was going to be crucified. And there, like, there's tons of connections between Jesus' life and death and the sacrifice, uh, like Alan talked about, the sacrifice of the animals, the sheep, and the goats, the cows um, in temple worship in the Old Testament. And, and so um, I can't remember what the name of it, but there's a term for when the animal would be brought and either the individual who brought it or the priest would lay their hand on the head of the animal and then they would have to confess their sin verbally. And in, in placing your hand on the head of the animal and confessing your sin, you, you in a sense transferred your guilt onto that guiltless animal. Animal didn't do anything wrong but you transferred your guilt to that animal and that animal was killed on your behalf and the shed blood of the animal paid the price, at least temporarily, for your sin. When Jesus uh, comes before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling class, the high priest who does the temple worship, when he comes in there, the people have to announce a sentence on him. They have to confess their sin. And they have to put their hands on him because he is the sacrificial lamb. And so they did put their hands on him. Um, they didn't rest their hands on, on his head to transfer their sin. They slapped him in the face. And then they uh, confessed a sin, but they didn't think it was their sin. They said it was Jesus' sin. And he, they said he was guilty of the sin of blasphemy, which means he's guilty of pretending that he was God. Okay, now think about this irony for just a second. These people were announcing a, a, a sin of Jesus saying that he was guilty of pretending to be God and by that they themselves were pretending to be God because they were judging God. So they said Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, but really what they were doing was blaspheming because they were saying, we know better then God, we're gonna kill him. Interesting thing. Don't we do the same? When we look at God's word and, and God's word said like this is sin or don't do this or whatever, and we look at that and we go, eh, I think I'm gonna do this. Aren't we kind of guilty of doing the same thing? Saying, I, God, I know better than, than you. Do you know what's happening in the world right now? Well, I'm gonna do this because I think it's better for me right now. Interesting situation that we get ourselves in. Um, and, and so God desires to remain in relationship with him, but we constantly, we consistently reject him and, and we become enslaved to other things. We've rejected God. We've relied our, on our own abilities to save us. And so the point that we get to is that like we need help because we can't do it on our own. 
We continue to fall, we continue to fail, we continue to reject him. And so we need God to do something in us. That's what Ezekiel says. We need a new heart because the heart that we have just doesn't work right. It's, it's hard and we, we harden it toward God. And so God knows we can't follow. He's tried multiple times to be in relationship with humanity, with his people, and it just hasn't worked. He knows that we can't remain true to him. He knows that we have wandering eyes. He knows that we have selective hearing. He knows that we have a deceitful heart. But then we get to this really interesting thing. In the beginning of Ezekiel, in chapter 11, we read, we read this. God's uh, talking to Ezekiel again. He has another vision. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God. So Ezekiel, you're supposed to tell everybody this is what God is saying. Though I remove them far off from among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, so when they come back to Israel, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations and I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a, yeah and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their god now this line they will be my people and I will be their god this is exactly what god said when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and they were at Mount Sinai. So this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people, we're gonna be in this, in this covenant um, here. And so in the very beginning of Ezekiel, in, in chapter 11, God like lays out the plan. He says, hey, look, all this other stuff is gonna happen. I'm gonna show you all these visions and you're gonna see all these things. The people's hearts continue to be hard and they continue to reject me and go off. But from the very beginning, he said, I'm gonna do something amazing uh, among you. And there's some really amazing things happening in, in this verse. First, notice that, that while Israel is being um, disciplined, while Israel is being disciplined for their spiritual adultery, God never left them alone. He, he said, you were scattered all over, all over the world, but I have been a sanctuary for you. And, and what do we think of when, when we hear the term sanctuary? What kind of things that it bring up? Well, what, sanctuary is that place where you're supposed to go and there's supposed to be peace. There's supposed to be comfort there. You're supposed to be protected there. And so God says, even though in your discipline you were scattered all over the world, like I never left you. I was there with you and I was a comfort to you. I was a help. I brought you peace even when you were, you were far away. The second thing we learned, he says that um, while their exile was for their own good, God says, I'm gonna gather you back together. Wherever you're at and all the places you're scattered to, I'm gonna gather you from all over the world and then I'm gonna bring you back to your homeland. Like, I know you don't have any hope. Everything looks terrible. Everything looks bad. But don't worry. I'm going to bring you back home. 
And then God says that when they come back home, they're gonna remove the idols, they're gonna destroy the worship sites of the false god, and then, goes on, then God goes on with his promises. He says, um, God is gonna give them, he says, one heart. And that seems kind of weird for people. What, what the text really is saying is that God's gonna unify them together. As a nation, they're gonna have one heart, which means they're gonna be after the same thing. They're gonna have the same purpose. They're gonna have the same goal. They're gonna be functioning as one, like a good team out on the field of battle. Like they all know, I have, the, I have a different jobs, but we're all moving the same direction. We all have the same goal. And he says, I'm gonna give you this unified heart so that you can all serve the same purpose. And then he says, I'm gonna give you a new spirit. And what do we think of the spirit again? We go back to the valley of dry bones where the spirit of God comes and gives life. He says, I'm gonna give you a new spirit, like the spirit that entered those dead bones. I'm gonna give life. I'm gonna inject life into this nation once again. And then finally, God says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna take the heart of stone from your body and I'm gonna replace it with a heart of flesh. I'm gonna replace it with a, with a heart that is... Um, that is moldable, a heart that is soft, a heart that is in line with, with mine. This new heart will allow people, then he says, to walk in his statues or walk in his, in his ways, to obey his rules. And then finally, he says, finally, you'll be my people and I will be your God. This is a goal from the very beginning. Chapter 11, Ezekiel, God's like, look, here's what's gonna happen, Zeke, but you gotta go through all this other stuff to get back to this point. But my question for you today is this, did any of this happen? Did any of this happen? Well, we know at the end of 70 years, God, God did gather them together and he brought them back to, to Israel. That, that, that did happen. And we know that God never left them alone. And we know that God promised to give them all these things. But did any of that really happen? I'll, I'll give you the answer so you don't have to guess. The answer is no. No. Did God set his feet and his throne back in Jerusalem? Nope. He didn't. At least he hasn't done it yet. The, the people of Israel... They believe God, uh, through Ezekiel, was speaking about them alone. That they were going to return to Israel, they were gonna return to their homeland, and everything was gonna be great. They thought it was all about them. But look back at the passage that we just read. What is the one part that the people are supposed to play in all of these things that God is doing? There's one thing that he says the people are going to do I've been a sanctuary to them. I'm gonna gather them back together. And then he says, once they get there, they're gonna do this one thing. Verse 18, it says that when they come back, they will remove the detestable things. They'll remove all of that stuff. But that didn't happen. They got back to Israel and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the walls and they put houses up but nothing was ever really the same. In fact, when they dedicated the temple of God, the presence of God did not come back to the temple. 
you read that story and you find out that many of the people who were alive when the first temple was built and they understood, they'd seen the presence of God, they were devastated, they wept bitterly because of the situation they were in. There's this amazing thing about God. God loves you more than you can imagine. And he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you no matter what you've done. Even even in discipline, when you go to the far ends of earth, I'm gonna be a sanctuary for you. I'm gonna still be there. I'm gonna still give uh, give you peace. Even when you're in this discipline, I will never turn my back on you. But I have this dream for you. God has this dream for you and I that, would, that our hearts would be turned, that we would receive from him a unified heart, that we'd return to him, that he'd give us a new spirit and a heart of flesh, a soft, yielding heart in relationship with God and, and not trying to be autonomous on our own. And he said, there's one thing that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to remove the detestable things in our lives. So look, for you and I, as long as we're chasing other gods, we're gonna experience a hard heart. We're gonna experience eg- exile. Um, and, and, and not exile from, from God, the passage is pretty clear that God never, never leaves us, but we leave him. We have this exile in relationship. And it's the very reason that God sent his son. And so how do we get this new heart? We can't follow God. We continue to reject him. We continue to do things that he wouldn't have us do. How do we get this new heart? Well, I think what God was telling Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 11, I don't think he was talking about the city of Jerusalem in the place of Israel. I think he was talking about the new Jerusalem. I think he was talking about what happens when Jesus comes, when the king finally comes into his kingdom. Because if you, if you look at this, like in Jesus, um, we have the promised spirit. Jesus said, I'm gonna give you an, a new spirit that's gonna live in you. And that spirit that's inside of you then is gonna help you do the things that God would want you to do. It's gonna lead you in the ways of God. And even when you don't really want to do it, the Spirit of God is gonna help you do the things that, that maybe you don't have the power to do on your own. And, and in Jesus, our hearts are unified together after the purposes of God. In, in this case, in our case at real life, to see every person possible find real life in Jesus. And that only happens when we have Jesus and we're all going after the same thing. And in Jesus, we're told over and over in scripture that we get a new heart that allows us to live in such a way that we contrast the culture around us. We, we live like Jesus by looking like Jesus and it's different from the rest of the world. We have to remove the detestable things, which is hard, right? I mean, if it was easy, we'd have done it already. But when we have Jesus, when we have that spirit, when it begins to change our hearts, then we have the power to begin to remove those things from our lives. The visions God shows Ezekiel are are not just of a restored Israel. 
living in the city of Jerusalem, but they are visions of restored individuals living as a family in Jesus. The story of Ezekiel is not about Israel, it's about us. It's about people from all over the world who are not born Jews coming into the kingdom to be children of Abraham through Jesus. And through Jesus, not just those people who were born of Abraham physically, it's not just them who get the new heart and are unified and have a new spirit, but it's every person who by faith becomes a part of the family of God. In Jesus, our hearts can be unified to worship God alone. In Jesus, we can reject the evil things of the world and live counter-cultural. In Jesus, we can walk every moment in the presence and the spirit of God, and we can live with a new and devoted heart to God. None of that happened when the Jews returned to Israel 70 years after the exile, but it all happened when Jesus broke the power of sin and death on the cross and became the first citizen and king of an eternal kingdom of people, a people from all over the world who can be part of God's family by faith, if not by birth. And so if we want a new heart today, if, if we're tired of this heart of stone that we have, ask God to help you identify and then remove the idols in your life. God, is there anything that's coming between me and you? Anything that I'm following instead of following you? Anything that divides my attention and my devotion? And then as you begin to look more like Jesus through that process, you'll feel your heart begin to beat once again. You'll feel what it's like to be a part of this family with a new heart, completely devoted to God spring. God, thank you for loving us and thank you for your son, Jesus, because it's only in him and through him that any of this can be accomplished. And God, we thank you for inviting us to be a part of your family, um, not, not by birth, but through faith. We can be children of Abraham. We can be children of the promise through faith in your son, Jesus. We pray that every person, uh, every person who by birth was born into Israel would have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart set on the things of God and one day would see Jesus for who he is. And for us, God, thank you for fulfilling that promise in us already, for making us one in you and giving us this new heart, and it's, it's not easy. This doesn't happen overnight, but help us, God, to continually gauge our lives, remove the things that divide our attention, be able to focus on you completely. Thank you for living among us, and thank you for doing the hard work of bringing us into your family. In Jesus' name, amen.